I have tasted the maggots in the mind of the universe. I was not offended, for I knew I had to rise above it all or drown in my own shit.
and welcome to the weekly review this is roman thank you so much for tuning in today it's friday april 20th 2018 we'll be going over some news stories uh, today for everybody here and we'll also be playing some music in between to to cleanse the palate as it were that was a song called maggot brain by funkadelic hope you enjoyed that Oftentimes I start off the show with a rant. I don't know if that's going to happen necessarily. Not to say that there's not things to rant about and be upset about and extremely frustrated about. (sighs) So we'll get to that, I imagine, at some point during the broadcast. Thanks so much for listening in. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio here in the Mission District in San Francisco. We're in Ohlone land, as much of the Bay Area is. So wanting to put that out there and start off the show with that, as well as provide a trigger warning in that we'll be talking about current events and the powers that be doing really fucked up things and the rest of us having to deal with it. Hopefully there'll be some optimistic stories out there. Occasionally there are, and especially looking globally in terms of folks taking action around the, around the world. That's still happening, and that's happening here Locally, it's happening here in the U.S. as well, and it's important not to lose sight of of all the folks doing really great work to to move forward. So that's happening. I suppose I'll start off with some news stories for everyone here. I say everyone, the folks listening, thank you again so much for listening, and also a big thank you to Shirley for donating to the show. If you would like to donate, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. You can also donate directly to the station, Mutiny Radio. This is a kind of a collective-ish type space. Um, we have a lot of slots open and available if you would like to do a show of your own. It's it's uncensored, so folks can say what they'd like to say. There's spots to do music, comedy, spoken word, news, informational, anything you'd like. So if you're interested in doing a show of your own, please check out mutinyradio.fm and get in touch with Pam, who is the station director. We also have spaces available for rentals on Saturday nights. You can rent the space and have a show here. You get provided a live broadcast and you have a sound recording of it that you get to save and access afterwards. So it's a pretty good deal here. I only had one cup of coffee and maybe that's why I'm a little bit low. I also meditated this morning, so perhaps that has an impact We'll see if I get truly enraged by the end of the program, which is a very, there's a very good chance that will happen. We're also taking calls. I've been wanting to book some guests and sometimes things don't quite work out as we hoped. And so we are really looking forward to anyone calling in today. Our number is 415-550-0511. Please do call in, check in, let us know what's going on with you, and we hope to have some great guests coming in in the next upcoming few weeks. And thanks again to all the listeners out there and for also spreading the word, all these good things. So we, one, there's many different names that folks could call this country that we're in. I personally don't believe in borders. However, I I don't make the rules. I don't think I'd want to make the well, maybe I would make some rules that might make things a little bit easier for people that, you know, everyone has access to shelter and food and health care. We could start off with that and then borders are erased and prisons are abolished and police are abolished and people take care of each other and we have a mentality where we try to rehabilitate people instead of punish people. Okay, so maybe I do want to make some rules. Okay. That being said, ugh, that phrase, I don't know, it just came out. <sighs> 
the idea that I think a lot of folks in this country, there's this idea of uh, victim blaming, which is pretty widespread. And it not only makes things worse, it may, I mean, it makes the pro- problems that exist in the society worse. And it also is just incredibly frustrating. And it makes, yeah, it makes things go in the, in the opposite direction that they should be going in. And so instead of actually solving the issues that we have, it blames people who are in certain predicaments because of systemic injustice. And it's really frustrating. And then when people call it out, that's, that'll be a theme of the show. When people call out injustice, then they're vilified for it. And there's this idea that we have free speech in this country, but uh, there was a line in one of the Clash songs, Know Your Rights. Uh, oh, you have the right to free speech only if you're dumb enough to, but not if you're dumb enough to try it, something along those lines. And how certain speech is allowed and certain other speech is not. And it's really the folks who want to maintain that injustice here in this country. They get there, they and their followers are protected with their speech and their actions and folks who speak out against it are then vilified. And we'll be talking a little bit about a professor at Fresno, Fresno state who spoke about how Barbara Bush who passed away was quote unquote, an amazing racist. And in that, that she was racist and folks got really, some people got really angry about that. Also, Oh, I know. How could I thought? I, oh, of course. Here I, I come in, I've meditated, I'm all calm, I had a nice bike ride over, the weather's nice, uh, everything's, you know, not perfect by any means, but I feel like I'm in a pretty decent spirits, and then it's like, oh, I totally forgot about all these really problematic things that happened this week in my own personal, you know, sphere. Oh, goodness gracious. I don't know how to begin this exactly. I think a lot of it's just been disappointed, disappointment in humanity, and I have low expectations, certainly, given the world that we live in. And I still find almost on a daily basis, I'm like, that really, ha- like, really, this this happened? We haven't quite crawled out of something? Okay. So, uh, I also want to speak, uh, I don't even know how to, whew. let me get my thoughts together here. I want to be very clear with, with what I'm saying. Uh, so I'm taking a couple of classes right now, and one is a, an organizing class. We had a guest speaker, Alicia Garza, who's incredible, and she was speaking about Black Lives Matter. And there are a couple of folks who are we're, all, we're also allowed to bring uh, friends to the class, which is great. And there are a couple of people who students who were in the class who said a couple things because um, we after she spoke, we were allowed to go around and ask questions and encouraged to. And I I'm pretty much I consider myself to be an introvert and shy. And perhaps there are times when I should speak up more. And this was definitely an indication of like, I should have spoken up. So there were a couple of students who said a couple of things that were, I'm not even going to repeat it. Cause it was just like, Oh, really? I can't. Ugh, ugh. And uh, ugh. it was all under the guise of like, they're those, I don't even want to fucking defend it. Cause it's just like, really, this is where we're at. We're in an organizing class here. You would think that there'd be certain things that folks may have learned by now. And it just, it came across, it was white, you know, white folks and uh, I'm not being very clear, but talk to me about it. And I can even, even vocalizing it is just so, and I, I didn't say anything. I was just kind of like, by the second person, I was just had my, I wanted to like bang my head against my desk be like, what? Like, no. And I couldn't quite use my voice to be like calling people out on it. And other people in class did. And I feel like really it's just, it's fucked up that for, you know, white folks such as myself, like it should be us to call out the other white folks on their 
on their ignorance and on their bullshit and also recognizing, yes, we all come from different places and it's impossible not to be enveloped in white supremacy if you grew up in this country with all the media and the schooling and the, the backwards mentality. And I also recognize we all, I make mistakes, everyone makes mistakes, and the best we can do is to check our own behavior and learn to work through that and not do it again and also call out other folks who say <sighs> really fucked up things and messed up things. I'm not being very clear here. Hopefully, I'm conveying what I'm saying. Okay, so I didn't say anything, but I pretty much was like having, I was just like, oh, a physical reaction. So I felt very just frustrated and disappointed with people that this happened. I felt disappointed with myself that I didn't speak up as it happened. And I get home. Lisa Garza is great, though. And it was just like really awesome to hear her talk and really inspiring and just really fucking rad. And she talked about some upcoming... I took some notes, too. I don't have them with me. Um, some upcoming uh, projects that, that she's working on with many other folks. And it just sounds really cool. So... Down the line, that's a, the positive thing is that there's really great things in the works and in, in the pipeline that are working. That's great. Okay, so that was, I was like, oh, people, terrible. So I come home and then I'm like, oh, I'll check Facebook because that'll make me feel better. No. Someone <laughs> posted that the Women's March, their Twitter feed, had posted a photo of Barbara Bush and it said, quote unquote, rest in, um, uh, like rest in, or like rest in power or something like that with a, with a photo of her. And I was like, I thought it was a joke. I was like, oh, ha, 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 ha. Um, just because she's a woman doesn't mean you need to celebrate her life when she supported and raised two war profiteers. That's my... And then she's... I mean, if you type in Barbara Bush and Katrina and hear about her statements... Ugh. 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 Anyway. So I was just like... I, I was... I thought it was a joke. I was like, oh, this is funny because a lot of folks rightfully criticized the, the women's march and some folks involved with it for not being i mean intersectional is one word and even just far enough to really like look at the systemic injustice and also as someone who was fucking if everyone who came to the women's march had been there a few days earlier the inauguration would have been shut down full stop no question so it's also like maybe a little bit late to the late to the party there's a lot of critiques about it and also one recognize there's Everything, you know, if you're showing up, it's like at least something in the right direction and also too late, etc. Pushing for a better world, a more involved world where everyone listens to each other and supports each other. So, but if you're going to fucking tweet that Barbara, like, I mean, really? Really? You didn't have to say anything, but to say like to, like, I mean, what? Huh? Okay, so I thought this was a joke. And sure enough, it's real on their Twitter feed, they were pretty, you know, like, and I get that there's that saying, oh, you know, don't speak poorly of the deceased. And then it's like, oh, so you're going to like, just not criticize anyone who's ever lived and caused a lot of harm to people. Is that it? Is that how we're doing things? Because if you can't critique anyone and their behavior, especially people in positions of power who cause harm to others, then where are we? When, when do we have a chance to, we can't do it when they're alive. We can't do it when they're dead. When do we get to speak up? And I'm pretty sure folks speaking up and saying that what this person said and did was problematic and hurtful and resulted in the deaths of a lot of people, that speaking up is so minor, that quote-unquote injury that some people are, are so upset about, that insult, 
that they feel it's an insult is so minor compared to the actions taken that this person has supported in her life that has literally killed people. So again, it's like, what are people choosing to be upset about? Oh, okay. So that was, that was on Tuesday. So I got really, I was just like, and I wanted to, I've been posting less and less on social media because I know I, I get that we're all being surveyed and everything. And then it's also like, maybe they can learn something about injustice for the folks. If they're, if you're looking at everything, I get that. And then also I'm just, sometimes I run out. I don't have the energy to even, I mean, right now I've been talking for a few minutes and I feel like I'm just barely scratching the surface or perhaps I've got some, there was a great writing exercise I learned um, I was studying under the great uh, Cassandra Medley back in in college, and one great exercise you just keep on writing, and I'm sure many other folks have uh, also had this exercise done, where you just you keep on writing, you don't lift your pen from the paper for like ten minutes, and then you go back and you circle certain ideas and phrases that really stuck out, and then you go back and you revisit those, and then you kind of go on from there. And I was thinking about that and how just with talking, like I, it, it's the. Our, I don't want to say our country. Ugh. I feel it's one can't help but be brainwashed and gaslit in this country. And when you speak the truth and people come after you and to even have the energy and the, to get things out and to t- talk about things as they are is so difficult. Oh, oh. So we'll be getting into a couple of stories that are about that. And, oh, oh, just disappointed in people, really. And it's also kind of like, it's this roadblock where it's like, here in class, we had this great speaker, and we're here to learn from her and to interact and to, you know, talk about how, ideally, how can we all work together? How do we make life that's equitable for people? How do we get reparations for people? How do we move on to a different way of being with our behavior, not just talking about it, but actually doing it? Like, how does that happen? And we can't even get there because at points, folks have to correct other people who are not necessarily arguing with her, but saying things that are in a way like these, like road, like microaggression, microaggressions, kind of roadblock typey things. And it's like, we could have just kept quiet and just it's like why not just let (sighs) that's what i i feel it's like so many people have been throughout history working to make it so things can be just for everybody that people can get what they need and then the folks kind of come in and they're like "Uh, uh, uh," you know like putting the brakes on it for whatever reasons whatever insecurities whatever misinformation (sighs) and i get it it's just frustrating that it's frustrating to see it happen. And then also recognizing what can we do? What can I do also to prevent that from happening again? And I guess that, you know, education is the thing and I have to keep on educating people. All right. So there's my rant. I don't know if I came to any conclusions, just that uh, getting it out of my body and, uh, Oh, and I also recognize this is something that happens every fucking day. And this was like only like a minor, it's like a minor frustration. Ugh. Also, we can talk about how people, especially like white folks call the cops and how fucking ridiculous that is. And there's a great flow chart. I think I talked about it. I've, talk, I've been talking about it pretty much on this program for a long time, just different reasons and the history of, of policing in this country. 
and alternatives. And I really appreciate that approach because there are things that really are really upsetting and we can critique it till the end of time. And if we don't provide alternatives, then nothing's going to change. So I really appreciate when folks gather information to provide alternatives. And one big thing folks can do, of course, is get to know your neighbors, get to know people in your community. And I get that it's difficult. I've mentioned before, I'm an introvert. It's hard for me to go out and talk to people and know people. And also, that's one way, though, if we get to talk to people, there will be less suspicion, less fear, and more community building. And therefore, if something happens in your community, the idea is that the more people you know that you feel you can turn to and talk to, the less likely you'll be having to call the state. You won't feel like that's an option if you know that you live next door to someone who might be trained in mental health or someone who might be trained in some other other way and or can provide some other support. So I really appreciate that. And it also just goes against the whole idea of this individualism in terms of, or isolationism. I forget the exact terminology of it, the idea that somehow we don't need other people because we really need other, we need, we need other people, we do. So what can we do to branch out more? And that's, that was one great thing. There's another in the flowchart. They also, it's difficult for me. I don't have it in front of me. And also as it's a really great graphic, so it's difficult to describe and it really does go point by point. Like, okay, what situation am I in? Is this something that I could, that is like life or death? Is this something that I could, is going to be a big deal if we don't solve it right now? Like certain situations where, if you step away from it, even taking a few breaths and look back at the, at the, at the, the larger picture, these are things where you don't need to call the police because we all know, or <laughs> many of us know, I should say, that calling the police and getting them involved makes things worse for a lot of people. So what can we do to no, long, to no longer be reliant on the system that we are kind of brainwashed to, to call? Oh, something's going wrong. I better call the state people with fucking weapons who end up wrongfully arresting people, murdering people, assaulting people, intimidating people, et cetera, et cetera. And if I don't think there are many folks, I don't know who, I don't know who the full wide range of folks who listen to the show are, you know, like it's, so this is, this is, this is the truth for a lot of folks. So we need to create alternate systems. Uh, I'll probably get back to that at some point during the show. We heard about there's a, the two black men who were arrested at a Starbucks for being there for two minutes. They're there for two minutes. They're waiting for a friend. And a person working at Starbucks called the police on them, and they were arrested. And so now Starbucks is going to do all these. Uh, they're, they're shutting down for like one day to do a, a racial bias um, a racial like sensitivity training and the ADL anti-defamation league who are not necessarily the folks who should be doing the training in the opinion of a lot of us. It's really ridiculous. So, and it's also just, it's not just Starbucks. It's like this whole country. And I would say it's also a global issue too. So there are folks who are boycotting and folks are like, okay, here are alternatives. There have been a lot of articles posted online of black owned coffee shops. You can support. There are folks who are in Puerto Rico, which is now without power. The, I've, I've read it's even more widespread now. Uh, you can support Puerto Rican farmers by buying their coffee. So there's a lot of alternatives you can do. And also, it's it goes way beyond this business model of like not supporting this business. It's really just a mentality. So how do people everywhere, not just at Starbucks, go without 
finding alternatives to calling cops. Also, like, it's, there wasn't even a fucking problem, though. It's not, not even like, I can't even... <sighs> okay. All right. We're going to get to the story. We're going to get to some news stories. Will I get more exasperated? Probably. It always happens at some point during the show. <sighs> okay. We're going to start off with a story from The Guardian. And this goes back to the whole idea of victim blaming and how that's it's pretty common in this country. And this was written by uh, Barbara Ehrenreich. And this came out on March 31st of this year. Why are the poor blamed and shamed for their deaths? When someone dies, she often suffers a brutal moral autopsy, says Barbara Ehrenreich. Did she smoke, drink excessively, eat too much fat? I watched in dismay as most of my educated middle-class friends began at the onset of middle age to obsess about their health and likely long, longe- longevity. Even those who were once... Who, I'm going to slow down a little bit. Whew. Even those who were at one point determined to change the world refocused on changing their bodies. They undertook exercise or yoga regimens. They filled their calendars with medical tests and exams. They boasted about their quote-unquote good and bad cholesterol counts, their heart rates and blood pressure. Mostly, they understood the task of aging to be self-denial, especially in the red, one study or another, condemned fat and meat, carbs, gluten, dairy, or all animal-derived products. In the health-conscious mindset that has prevailed among the world's affluent people for about four decades now, health is indistinguishable from virtue. Tasty foods are quote-unquote sinfully delicious, while healthful foods may taste good enough to be advertised as guilt-free. Those seeking to compensate for a lapse undertake punitive measures such as hours-long cardio sessions, fasts, purges, or diets composed of different juices carefully sequenced throughout the day. Of course, I want to be healthy too. I just don't want to make the pursuit of health into a major life project. I eat well, meaning I choose foods that taste good and will stave off hunger for as long as possible, such as protein, fiber, and fats. But I refuse to overthink the potential hazards of blue cheese on my salad or pepperoni on my pizza. I also exercise, not because it will make me live longer, but because it feels good when I do. As for medical care, I will seek help for an urgent problem, but I am no longer interested in undergoing tests to uncover problems that remain undetectable to me. When friends berate me for my laxity, my heavy use of butter or habit of puffing but not inhaling on cigarettes, I gently remind them that I am, in most cases, older than they are. So, it was with a measure of schadenfreude that I began to record the cases of individuals whose healthy lifestyles failed to produce lasting health. It turns out that many of the people who got caught up in the health craze of the last few decades, people who exercised, watched what they ate, abstained from smoking and heavy drinking, have nevertheless died. Lucille Roberts, owner of a chain of women's gyms, died incongruously from lung cancer at the age of 59, although she was a quote-unquote self-described exercise nut, who, the New York Times reported, wouldn't touch a french fry, much less smoke a cigarette. Jerry Rubin, who devoted his later years to trying every supposedly health-promoting diet fad, therapy, and meditation system he could find, Jay walked into Wilshire Boulevard at the age of 56 and died of his injuries two weeks later. 
Some of these deaths were genuinely shocking. Jim Fix, author of the best-selling The Complete Book of Running, believed he could outwit the cardiac problems that had carried his father off to an early death by running at least 10 miles a day and restricting himself to a diet of pasta, salads, and fruit. But he was found dead on the side of a Vermont road in 1984, aged only 52. Even more disturbing was the untimely demise of John H. Knowles, director of the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, promulgator of the doctrine of personal responsibility for one's health. Most illnesses are self-inflicted, he argued, the result of gluttony, alcoholic intemperance, reckless driving, sexual frenzy, smoking, and other bad choices. The idea of a right to health, he wrote, should be replaced by the idea of an individual moral obligation to preserve one's own health. But he died of pancreatic cancer at 52, prompting one physician commentator to observe, clearly we can't all be held responsible for our health. Still, we persist in subjecting anyone who dies at at a seemingly untimely age to a kind of bio-moral autopsy. Did she smoke? Drink excessively? Eat too much fat and not enough fiber? Can she, in other words, be blamed for her own death? When David Bowie and Alan Rickman both died in early 2016 of what major U.S. newspapers described only as quote-unquote cancer, some readers complained that it is the responsibility of obituaries to reveal what kind of cancer. Ostensibly, this information would help promote awareness of the particular cancers involved, as Betty Ford's openness about her breast cancer diagnosis helped to destigmatize that disease. It would also, of course, prompt judgments about the victim's lifestyle. Would Bowie have died at the quite respectable age of 69 if he hadn't been a smoker? And there's a quote in the middle here. With with sufficient... Ingenuity or malicious intent, almost any death can be blamed on some mistake of the deceased. Next. Apple co-founder Steve Jobs' 2011 death from pancreatic cancer continues to spark debate. He was a food faddist, eating only raw vegan foods, especially fruit, and refusing to deviate from that plan even when doctors recommended a high-protein and fat diet to help compensate for his failing pancreas. His office refrigerator was filled with Odwalla juices. He antagonized non-vegan associates by attempting to proselytize among them, as biographer Walter Isaacson has reported. At a meal with Mitch Caper, the chairman of Lotus Software, Jobs was horrified to see Kapoor, excuse me, uh, Mitch Kapoor, the chairman of Lotus Software. Jobs was horrified to see Kapoor slathering butter on his bread and asked, have you ever heard of serum cholesterol? Kapoor responded, I'll make you a deal. You stay away from commenting on my dietary habits, and I will stay away from the subject of your personality. (laughs) Defenders of veganism argue that his cancer could be attributed to his occasional forays into protein eating, a meal of eel sushi has been reported, or to exposure to toxic metals as a young man tinkering with computers. But a case could be made that it was the fruitarian diet that killed him. Metabolically, a diet of fruit is equivalent to a diet of candy, only with fructose instead of glucose, with the effect that the pancreas is strained to constantly produce more insulin. As for the personality issues, the almost manic-depressive mood swings, they could be traced to frequent bouts of hypoglycemia. Incidentally, 67-year-old Mitch Kapoor is alive and well at the time of this writing. Similarly, with sufficient ingenuity or malicious intent, almost any death can be blamed on some mistake of the deceased. 
Surely Fix had failed to listen to his body when he first felt chest pains and tightness while running. And maybe, if he had been less self-absorbed, Reuben would have looked both ways before crossing the street. Maybe it's just the way the human mind works, but when bad things happen or someone dies, we seek an explanation, preferably one that features a conscious agent, a deity or spirit, an evildoer or envious acquaintance, even the victim. We don't read detective novels to find out that the universe is meaningless, but that, with sufficient information, it all makes sense. We can, or think we can, understand the causes of disease in cellular and chemical terms, so we should be able to avoid it by following the rules laid down by medical science, avoiding tobacco, exercising, undergoing routine medical screening, and eating only foods currently considered healthy. Anyone who fails to do so is inviting an early death. Or, to put it another way, every death can now be understood as suicide. Liberal commentators countered that this view represented a kind of victim-blaming, in her books, Illness as Metaphor and Aids to and Its Metaphors, Susan Sontag argued against the oppressive moralizing of disease, which was increasingly portrayed as an individual problem. The lesson, she said, was watch your appetites, take care of yourself, don't let yourself go. Even breast cancer, she noted, which has no clear lifestyle correlates, could be blamed on a quote-unquote cancer personality, sometimes defined in terms of repressed anger, which presumably one could have sought therapy to cure. Little was said, even by the major breast cancer advocacy groups, about possible environmental carcinogens or carcinogenic medical regimes such as hormone replacement therapy. While the affluent struggled dutifully to conform to the latest prescriptions for healthy living, adding whole grains and gym time to their daily plans, the less affluent remained mired in the old, comfortable, unhealthy ways of the past, smoking cigarettes and eating foods they found tasty and affordable. There are more. There are some obvious reasons why the poor and the working class resisted the health craze. Gym memberships can be expensive. Health foods usually cost more than junk food. But as the classes diverged, the new stereotype of the lower classes as willfully unhealthy quickly fused with their old stereotype as semi-literate louts. I confront this in my work as an advocate for a higher minimum wage. Affluent audiences may cluck sympathetically over the miserably low wages offered to blue-collar workers, but they often want to know, quote-unquote, why these people don't take better care of themselves. Why do they smoke or eat fast food? Concern for the poor usually comes tinged with pity and contempt. In the aughts, British celebrity chef Jamie Oliver took it on himself to reform the eating habits of the masses, starting with school lunches. Pizza and burgers were replaced with menu items one might expect to find in a restaurant. Fresh greens, for example, and roast chicken. But the experiment was a failure. In the U.S. and U.K., school, ch- school children dumped out their healthy new lunches or stamped them underfoot. Mothers passed burgers to their children through school fences. Administrators complained that the new meals were vastly over budget. Nutritionalists noted that they were cruelly deficient in calories. In Oliver's defense, it should be observed that ordinary junk food is chemically engineered to provide an addictive combination of salt, sugar, and fat. But it probably matters, too, that he didn't study local eating habits in sufficient depth before challenging them, nor seems to have given enough thought to creatively modifying them. In West Virginia, he alienated parents by bringing a local mother to tears when he publicly announced the food she gave her four children was killing them. There may well be unfortunate consequences from eating the wrong foods, but what are the wrong foods? In the 80s and 90s, the educated classes turned against fat in all forms, advocating the low-fat and protein diet that journalist Gary 
Tobbs argues paved the way for an epidemic of obesity as health seekers switched from cheese cubes to low-fat desserts. The evidence linking dietary fat to poor health has always been shaky, but class prejudice prevailed. Fatty and greasy foods were, for the poor and unenlightened, their betters stuck to bone-dry biscotti and fat-free milk. Other nutrients went in and out of style as medical opinion shifted. It turns out high dietary cholesterol, as in oysters, is not a problem after all, and doctors have stopped pushing calcium on women over 40. Increasingly, the main villains appear to be sugar and refined carbohydrates, as in hamburger buns. Eat a pile of fries, wash down with a sugary drink, and you will probably be hungry again in a couple of hours, when the sugar rush subsides. If the only cure for that is more of the same, your blood sugar levels may permanently rise, what we call diabetes. Special opprobrium is attached to fast food, thought to be the food of the ignorant. Filmmaker Morgan Spurlock spent a month eating nothing but McDonald's to create his famous Super Size Me, documenting his 11 kilogram or 24 pound weight gain and soaring blood cholesterol. I've also spent many weeks eating fast food because it's cheap and filling, but in my case, to no perceptible ill effects. It should be pointed out, though, that I ate selectively, skipping the fries and sugary drinks to double down on the protein. When, at a later point, a notable food writer called to interview me on the subject of fast food, I started by mentioning my favorites, Wendy's and Popeye's, but it turned out they were all indistinguishable to him. He wanted a comment on the general category, which was like asking me what I thought about restaurants. If food choices defined the class gap, smoking provided a firewall between the classes. To be a smoker in almost any modern industrialized country is to be a pariah, and most likely a sneak. I grew up in another world, in the 1940s and 50s, when cigarettes served not only as a comfort for the lonely, but a powerful social glue. People offered each other cigarettes and lights, indoors and out, in bars, restaurants, workplaces, and living rooms, to the point where tobacco smoke became, for better or worse, the scent of home. My parents smoked, one of my grandfathers would roll a cigarette with one hand, my aunt, who was eventually to die of lung cancer, taught me how to smoke when I was a teenager, and the government seemed to approve. It wasn't until 1975 that the armed forces stopped including cigarettes, along with food, food rations. As more affluent people gave up the habit, the war on smoking, which was always presented as an entirely benevolent effort, began to look like a war against the working class. When the break rooms offered by employers banned smoking, workers were forced outdoors, leaning against walls to shelter their cigarettes from the wind. When working class bars went non-smoking, their clientele dispersed to drink and smoke in private, leaving few indoor sites for gatherings and conversations. Escalating cigarette taxes hurt the poor and the working class hardest. The way out is to buy single cigarettes on the streets, but strangely enough, the sale of, those, of these Lucy's is largely illegal. In 2014, a Staten Island man, Eric Garner, was killed in a chokehold by city police for precisely this crime. Why do people smoke? I once worked in a restaurant in the era when smoking was still permitted in break rooms and many workers left their cigarettes burning in the common ashtray so they could catch a puff whenever they had a chance to without bothering to relight. Everything else they did was done for the boss or the customers. Smoking was the only thing they did for themselves. In one of the few studies of why people smoke, a British sociologist found smoking among working-class women was associated with greater responsibilities for the care of family members, again suggesting a kind of defiant self-nurturance. 
When the notion of stress was crafted in the mid-20th century, the emphasis was on the health of executives, whose anxieties presumably outweighed those of the manual laborer who had no major decisions to make. It turns out, however, that stress, measured by blood levels of the stress hormone cortisol, increases as you move down the socioeconomic scale, with the most stress inflicted on those who have the least control over their work. In the restaurant industry, stress is concentrated among the people responding to the minute-by-minute demands of customers, not those who sit in offices discussing future menus. Add to those workplace stresses that challenges imposed by poverty and you get a combination that is highly resistant to, for example, anti-smoking propaganda, as Linda Torado reported in at, about her life as a low-wage worker with two jobs and two children. I smoke. It's expensive. It's also the best option. You see, I am always, always exhausted. It's a stimulant. When I am too tired to walk one more step, I can smoke and go out for another hour. When I am enraged and beaten down and incapable of accomplishing one more thing, I can smoke and I will feel a little better. Just for a minute. It is the only relaxation I am allowed. Nothing has happened to ease the pressures on low-wage workers. On the contrary, if the old paradigm of of a blue-collar job was 40 hours a week, an annual two-week vacation and benefits such as a pension and health insurance, insurance, the, the new expectation is that one will work on demand as needed without benefits or guarantees. Some surveys now find a majority of U.S. retail staff working without regular schedules, on call for when an employer wants them to come and unable to predict how much they will earn. With the rise of in just-in-time scheduling, it becomes impossible to plan ahead. Will you have enough money to pay the rent? Who will take care of the children? The consequences of, the, of employee flexibility can be just as damaging as a program of random electric shocks applied to caged laboratory animals. Sometime in the early mid-aughts, demographers noticed an unexpected rise in death rates of poor white Americans. This was not supposed to happen. For almost a century, the comforting American narrative was that better nutrition and medical care would guarantee longer lives for all. It was especially not supposed to happen for to whites who, in relation to people of color, have long had the advantage of higher earnings, better access to health care, safer neighborhoods, and freedom from the daily insults and harms inflicted on the darker-skinned. But the gap between the life expectancies of blacks and whites has been narrowing. In the first response of some researchers, themselves likely to be well above the poverty level, was to blame the victims. Didn't the poor have worse health habits? Didn't they smoke? In late 2015, British economist Angus Deaton won the Nobel Prize for work he had done with Anne Case, showing that the mortality gap between wealthy white men and poor ones was widening at a rate of one year of, of one year a year, and slightly less for women. Smoking could account for only one fifth to one third of the excess working class deaths. The rest were apparently attributable to alcoholism, opioid addiction, and actual suicide as opposed to metaphorically killing oneself through unwise lifestyle choices. Why the excess mortality among poor white Americans? In the last few decades, things have not been going well for working class people of any color. I grew up in an America where a man with a strong back and a strong union could reasonably expect to support a family on his own without a college degree. By 2015, those jobs were long gone, leaving only the kind of work once relegated to women and people of color available in areas such as retail, landscaping, and delivery truck driving. 
This means those in the bottom 20% of the white income distribution face material circumstances like those long familiar to poor blacks, including erratic employment and crowded hazardous living spaces. Poor whites always had the comfort of knowing that someone was worse off and more despised than they were. Racial subjugation was the ground under their feet, the rock they stood upon, even when their own situation was deteriorating. That slender reassurance is shrinking. There are some practical reasons why whites are likely to be more efficient than blacks at killing themselves. For one thing, they are more likely to be gun owners, and white men favor gunshot as a means of suicide. For another, doctors, undoubtedly acting on stereotypes of non-whites as drug addicts, are more likely to prescribe powerful opioid painkillers to whites. Pain is endemic among blue-collar working class, from waitresses to construction workers, and few people make it past 50 without palpable damage to their knees, back, or shoulders. As opioids become more expensive and closely regulated, oh, as, op- as opioids became more expensive and closely regulated, users often made the switch to heroin, which, being illegal, can vary widely in strength, leading to accidental overdoses. Affluent reformers are perpetually frustrated by the unhealthy habits of the poor, but it is hard to see how problems arising from poverty and damaging work conditions could be cured by imposing the doctrine of personal responsibility. I have no objections to efforts encouraging people to stop smoking or add more vegetables to their diets, but the class gap in mortality will not be closed by tweaking individual tastes. This is an effort that requires concerted action on a vast scale, a welfare state to alleviate poverty, environmental cleanup of, for example, lead in drinking water, access to medical care including mental health services, occupational health reforms to reduce disabilities inflicted by work. The wealthier classes will also benefit from these measures, but what they need right now is a little humility. We all we will all die, whether we, sh- we slake our thirst with kombucha or Coca-Cola, whether we run five miles a day or remain confined to our trailer homes, whether we dine on quinoa or KFC. This is the human condition. It's time we began facing it together. And so this article was an uh, edited extract from Natural Causes by Barbara Ehrenreich, and it was published by Granta on April 12th. And you can check that out at guardianbookshop.com. And you can also check out this full article at theguardian.com. That's a lot of food for thought. Oh, I'm sorry I said that. I couldn't resist. I guess I could have resisted, but I didn't. Ugh. Okay. So let's play some music, and we'll be back in a bit. Thank you. 
خالد عبد الهادي اسمي ستيف انا اسمي الي انا اسمي داليا اسمي حمد سنو بعمل موسيقى بغني بفرقه اسمها مشروع ليلى بلبنان وانا كوير انا بعرف عن حالي كرجل مثلي توجهي الجنسي في المطلق ما حبش اصنف نفسي بس انا مثليه I'm a brother I'm a son I'm a grandson I'm an actor and I'm gay لما كنت كثير صغير عمر الخمس ست سنوات كنت اعرف انه في الموضوع بالنسبه لي مختلف شوي بتذكر كثير منيح اللحظه على هالوين فكانت اول مره انا كنت بلبس تنوره اختي وبتحط لي مام ميك اب على وجهي شوي ناعم بعدنا لهلا بس اطلع بالصور بتذكر هيداك النهار قديش انا كنت مبسوطه فيه وقد كنت مرتاحه طلعت على الانترنت وصرت فتش وفتش 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 لقيت جروب فيه كميه يعني من البنات موجودين وسودانيات فكتبت انتوا وين يا جماعه؟ <تصفيق> لا انا ما برايك في العالم في ناس كثير شبهي و كنت كنت سعيده جدا اعتقد انه اليوم ذاك انا ما نمت من السعاده انا بجا من عائله شوي كونزرفاتيف مش شوي كثير فكان في هيك الدين كثير موجود بحياتنا اول فكره فكرت فيها انه الله شو رح يقول هي رحله معتقداتي كانت تتعارض كليا مع مع كياني مع مع كوني شخص مثلي او بيميل للاناث كانه مسخ في شيء كليا غلط بفكره وجودي حتى بفكره انه ما هيك انت كانوا كثير ناس يتمسخروا علي كثير ناس يضربوني كنت احس حالي كنت احس حالي لحالي كنت لما بمشي بالشارع كانت كل الناس بتضحك علي بتصير تنادي علي باصوات عاليه انه يا زلمه يا 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 اللي مسترجله لا تسوي هيك لانه هذا سلوك النسوان عيب رجال يسوي هيك تعرضت لعنف جسدي انا ومجموعه من الاصدقاء كان يعني اغلبنا كان شكله مختلف او باين عليه انه هو من مجتمع المين تو دوني الراقي دي فوا كان يضربني اذا ما في مال اذا ما في اذا ما في ترومال ويقول ويقولها اخرجي اخرجي اون ديريك يا اون فام الانتيريور لازم يخرجها دونك يقعد يضرب من حتى الصباح نقعد انا انا حاجه ما حت حاجه ما حتتبدل كنت في الاول اللي مضاربه مع راسي ما حاملاش راسي كنحاول انا نبدل راسي ف هو في الحقيقه انا ما اختاريتش انا ما قدرش نبدل ما كنت افهم بوقتها انه هيدا هيدا الشيء مش غلط فيه انه هيدا الشيء غلط بالناس اللي حوالي مرات في ناس بتقول انه بتاخذ كثير شجاعه هيدا الشغله بس هي اكثر بتاخذ حسيت انا بتاخذ اكثر انه جلد يعني معظم الناس ما يعرفوا حتى شو كلمه مثلية الجنس معناتها يو نو فبيقولوا بيقولون اشياء مثل لوطي او مو طبيعي او هيك وانت شغلتك بس انه بكل هدوء وبتوازن تشرح لهم الموضوع يو نو اذا فهموا وتفتح مخهم خلاص اذا ما صار تمشي عنهم بعتقد لما يصيروا يقولوا انه صار جلد تخين اكثر ما سمعت اشياء واكثر ما قطعت باشياء بحياتي يعني خلاص صار مثل مثل نقطة المي بتجي علي وبتنزل 
ما كنتش كنظن بلي غادي نقدر يجي واحد النهار وتكون عندي القدره والقوه باش زعما نجاهر المجتمع ونقول ليه انا مثلي وبغيتي ولا ما بغيتيش فوقتها اخذت راحتي شوي وبعد فتره حكيت لواحد من اعز اصدقائي بالمدرسه كان قلت له انا انا مثلي قال لي مستحيل ما بصدقك بعدين بعد فتره يقول لي صراحه انا بحبك زي ما انت ما مش ما بيهمني ايش انت قلت له اوكي تمام ابويا ابويا اللي كان ضدي في كل حاجه يتحول من ال... من جانب الكراهيه لجانب التقبل وال والتسامح وانه يقبلني كبنت ويحبني حب غير مشروط ده بالنسبه لي كان معجزه وحسيت كانه حدا شيل عبء هيئل عني حتى بس بيني وبين نفسي ان اقدر اتقبل هيدا الشيء ساعدني ما بعرف اتقبل كل شيء اتقبل حياتي اتقبل اتقبل ان شخص بيستاهل بيستاهل السعاده وبيستاهل الحب وبيستاهل الوجود وبيستاهل الحقوق اني يعني بدي انتحر للحظه اني هسه اهلي يعرفون نوعا ما ويحبوني يتقبلوني فالتغيير يحتاج لوقت مو بسهوله يجي بس اصبر وانت مو بوحدك احنا وياك ورح تكتشف هواي ناس مغايرين ومثليين ومزدوجين ميول حيكونون وياك ما رح تكون بعدك شو بدي اقول للبنات الليزبيانز او كوير او بايسكشوال او شو ما تحس او بينجذبوا للبنات اول شيء بدي ابعث لكم قلب <تصفيق> وانه اذا هن مش عاجبهم انت شو؟ هن الغلط انت مثلي هذا ماشي مرض انت ماشي ضد الدين انت ماشي ضد الاسلام انت ماشي ضد التقاليد انت ماشي ضد الدوله او ضد العائله ديالك في الطريق نتاع التعرف الى الذات ولا التقبل الذات الوقت اللي تعطيه الراحه يخليك تشوف قديش انت محلك انا انسان مثلي مثلكم وعندي حقوقي وراح ادافع على حقوقي صعب هذا الشيء خاصه لما نكون بعدنا بعدنا صغار بالعمر وبيضلوا صعب بس بيصير بيصير اسهل And welcome back to the weekly review. We just played a, the audio from a video that's on a Huffington Post article, which I will now read. Uh, LGBTQ Arabs share stories of the social stigma of growing up queer. And if you would like the translations of to hear these folks speaking, you can check out the article. It's on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. And you can also find it on Huffington Post. And this came out a few days ago on April 18th and is written by Curtis M. Wong. LGBTQ Arabs share stories of the social stigma of growing up queer. A new campaign aims to show how queer activism survives under political, cultural, and religious constraints. LGBTQ activists from Arabic-speaking countries open up in a poignant video campaign about the challenges they experienced as they came to self-accept their sexualities and gender identities. Produced by the international advocacy group Human Rights Watch, the No Longer Alone video includes some famous names like actor Omar Sharif Jr. and singer-songwriter Hamed Sino, who is a frontman of the Lebanese rock band Mashru Leila. Some others appear on camera with their faces obscured. The one trait of all of the participants share, uh, the one trait all of the participants share, however, is the personal strength they feel in their decision to live authentically. 
I felt like a freak of nature, that there was something completely wrong with my existence even, Sino said, who identifies as queer, explains in the, in the clip, which can be viewed above. Some people would make fun of me, hit me. I used to feel very alone. After Sino came out, however, he came to understand that there is nothing wrong with me. It's, it's the people around me who were wrong. Dahlia, who hails from Egypt and identifies as gay, shares a similar anecdote. My father was against me in every way, she said, but he transformed from hateful to accepting and tolerant. He accepted me and loved me unconditionally. This was, in itself, a miracle. The video released on YouTube on Monday coincides with a new Human Rights Watch study titled Audacity in Adversity, LGBTQ Activism in the Middle East and North Africa. The report is based on interviews with 34 activists from 16 countries conducted between July 2017 and March 2018. It outlines the obstacles facing LGBTQ rights advocates in the region, including criminalization of same-sex conduct and gender nonconformity to lack of recognition of transgender people. But it also aims to show how queer activism survives under political, social, and religious constraints. Both the video and the report aimed to encourage young LGBTQ people to stand up for themselves despite the adversity they face. Religious figures, the government, your parents, they all want to have a say in what you do between your legs, Rima, a bisexual woman from Lebanon says. I want to tell you it's none of their business and that your body, your desires, and your ideas are yours alone. If they don't like what you, what you are, they are wrong. So again, you can find this article on Huffington Post. And also just a note that I've heard that uh, using the the term Middle East for a part of that geography is not always uh, correct. So just wanting to add a, a note there to the article. And if you'd like to check out the video again with the subtitles, again, you can check out it at Huffington Post. Okay, so there's something that's uplifting. I, I, I don't always promise that there will be, but we all know in the world that there's, a, even though there's can seem like there's a lot of really frustrating and terrifying things happening and behaviors happening. There's also a lot of folks uh, living authentically and doing what they can to help uplift themselves and others. So I feel like that's really positive and that's a good thing. Okay. Moving, <laughs> moving along to the, the next story here. Here's something else. Wow. Could we have two uplifting stories in a row? Has that ever happened on this show before? Probably maybe. We're going to do it again. And again, I find that oftentimes, well, the, the stories that I find to be uplifting or, or quote unquote positive are more when people stop something bad from happening or there's actions or behavior that's problematic and people stop or they look at, they look at it and say, no, we're not going to do this anymore. And I think it's easy for me. I can be like, oh, this shouldn't have had to even happen in the first place if folks, if this was never even a thing. However, if we can move into a world where it's, it's more just, um, these actions are really important and we should celebrate those. So this comes from the Washington Post. Uh, churches make a drastic pledge in the name of social justice to stop calling the police. And this is written by Julie Zosmer and it came out on April 19th. First Congregational Church of Oakland shares, oh yay, Oakland. It's always also just nice to uh, hear some Local local news here. Uh, First Congregational Church of Oakland shares a neighborhood with many homeless people who often come to the church in times of mental health crises. Sometimes church members feel unequipped to deal with the erratic behavior. The most heart-wrenching scenes, volunteer leader Nicola Torbett says, are the times when the church is closing for the day and a person with nowhere else to go absolutely refuses to leave the building. At least once or twice a month, at their wit's end, the church members call 911. 
Now, the church has joined a small handful of like-minded congregations with a radical goal to stop calling the police. Not for mental health crises, crises, excuse me, not for mental health crises, not for graffiti on their buildings. Why would you even call the, I can't even imagine, anyway, (laughs) raise money, paint over it if it's that big of a deal. Anyway, okay, let me get back to the article. Um, uh, Not even for acts of violence. These churches believe the American police system, criticized for its impact, especially on people of color, is such a problem that they should wash their hands of it entirely. Can this actually be reformed when it was actually created for the unjust distribution of resources or to police black and brown bodies, Torbett asked. For her and her fellow church members, the answer is no. The police don't just need reform. The police need to be abandoned altogether. The churches call their drastic approach divesting from policing. They say that one headline after another about policing around the country shows that divestment is necessary. Most recently include events include a notorious call to police about two African-American men at a Philadelphia Starbucks and the fatal shooting of Stefan Clark shot eight times as he was holding an iPhone, not a gun. The project of divesting is organized by Showing Up for Racial Justice, Surge, a nationwide organization that tries to get white Americans working on behalf of racial justice. The four Unitarian and Protestant churches that have joined so far include three in the Bay Area and one in Iowa City. The Northern California Nevada Conference of the United Church of Christ has signed on to recruit from among its member churches, and the Bay Area churches are talking to more congregations in their area from denominations including the Disciples of Christ and the Presbyterian Church, USA. It's a challenging ask, acknowledged the Reverend Ann Dunlap, a United Church of Christ minister who leads Surge's outreach to faith communities. It's a big ask to invite us as white folks to think differently about what safety means. Who do we rely on? What is safe? For whom? Should, should our safety be predicated on violence for other communities? And if not, what do we do if we're confronted with a situation because we are as con- because we are as congregations? How do we handle it if there's a burglary? How do we handle it if there's a situation of violence or abuse in the congregation? Those are hard questions. The churches that commit to ending their use of police resources are training members in alternate responses to danger. Torbett said at the first congregational, church leaders have invited experts from several nonprofits to train members on de-escalating mental health crises and on self-defense in the case of a violent person at the church. Our goal is to never call the police, she said. As members discuss self-defense, they've also decided that they will not arm anyone at the church with any weapon. The leaders involved in the surge effort say they are not asking churchgoers not to call the police if their lives outside not to call the police in their lives outside the church, though they hope that some will choose to refrain. Many of the churches that Surge approached were not interested. I had some hard conversations with pastors and members, Dunlap said. These were progressive organizations that had participated in our work in the past, hung Black Lives Matter banners, and had them vandalized. They said, we appreciate our relationship with the police. Ew. And we don't want to put them that at risk. But to Dunlap, resisting policing is among her religious obligations. You're talking about state violence against communities. You have to speak up and take a stand about that. There's not a nice way just to just play in the middle, she said. There's not a way to reform our way out of police violence, but to dismantle policing as a system. She envisions instead of a form of local accountability... Uh, in, in which neighbors get to know one another and defend their own communities. Chuck 
Wexler, the executive director of the Police Executive Research Forum, which conducts studies on improving policing, <laughs> said churches can and should take on some tasks themselves instead of calling police, like providing assistance to a person who is drunk or sick. But he cautioned that churches would be foolhardy to take the place of police in a violent situation, especially if the aggressor has a gun in a tragic case like the church shootings in Charleston, South Carolina, and Sutherland Springs, Texas. Moreover, Wexler believes clergy can use their moral influence to make police departments better. Uh, You can't see me roll my eyes, but I am. Uh, I understand where the folks may be coming from. They're saying we have issues, but if you have issues, you shouldn't cut yourself off from such an important institution of the community. I'm not gonna... Um, Okay. Um, It's... Okay, I'm not going to finish reading what this person's saying, because I... Okay. Dunlap said that even in the case of criminal behavior, she would ideally like to see churches not call police because she doesn't trust the criminal justice system to deliver a fair outcome. In the case of interpersonal violence for the survivors as well as the perpetrators, we want to look at transformative justice, she said. Would a punitive police and legal system actually bring us to, to the desired outcome for everyone involved? What are our actual values? What do our traditions teach us about redemption? Such a controversial position that members are discussing in each church. Or that's a controversial position that members are discussing in each church. Sarah Pritchard, a co-pastor at another Oakland church that has signed on, a Gape Fellowship, said that the pledge not to call the police applies to the churches, not to individual members. The hope is the training at church will inspire some members when they go home as well. When it comes to police and prisons, Pritchard uses an old word (laughs) to describe a still radical stance abolitionist. All right, you can check out that article on our weekly review page as well as on Washington Post. (sighs) As well as on the Washington Post. Great. Well, let's do another story, and then we'll take another music break. And this goes along to what with what we're speaking about earlier. And this is written by Sam Levin, and this is from The Guardian. You can check it out at theguardian.com. Blackface is free speech, but anti-Bush tweet is not at California University. State school system accused of glaring hypocrisy after initially say, saying Robert Bush criticism beyond free speech, but racist frat stunt is protected. And this came out uh, today. When a white student at California State University was caught this month wearing blackface, administrators had a clear message. It was racist, but quote-unquote protected by free speech. Fucking gross. Days later, when a professor tweeted that the late Barbara Bush was a racist, the university's tone was different. The faculty member would be investigated for her remarks, which a campus president said went beyond free speech. The divergent responses have provided a stark illustration of what some critics say is a double standard that has emerged in the fraught campus free speech debates of recent years. That is, in the face of conservative outrage over controversial left-wing views, (sighs) colleges are quick to condemn and censor. But when racism, hate speech, and pro-fascist views emerge, university presidents regularly declare their unwavering commitment to free speech rights, no matter the content. The scandals have erupted at a time when U.S. campuses have become the, p- the flashpoint for debates over the First Amendment, anti-fascist organizing, and social justice, with some far-right commentators raising their profiles by arguing that liberal universities are quote-unquote silencing them. Critics on the left have argued that the opposite is true, and that the parallel stories in California's state school system reveal uneven punishments for provocative speech. 
Last week, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, part of the state university system, sparked national outrage when a photo emerged of a fraternity member in blackface, leading the university's president, Jeffrey Armstrong, to tell a local newspaper that the student would not be expelled because the act was quote-unquote, very, very likely protected for free speech and freedom of expression. Ugh. Then on Wednesday, Rhonda Gerard, a Muslim-American writer and professor at the university's Fresno campus, launched a fresh round of negative headlines after tweeting that Bush, the former first lady who recently died, was, quote-unquote, an amazing racist who raised a war criminal. Amid viral stories on right-wing sites Breitbart and Fox News, the university president, Joseph Castro, slammed her comments as disrespectful and beyond free speech, adding, A professor with tenure does not have blanket protection to say and do what they wish. The glaring hypocrisy between these two stories and the university's reaction to both is outrageous and unfortunately typical, said Liz Jackson, staff attorney with Palestine Legal, a group that has fought universities over discrimination and censorship. In California, which prides itself on being the birthplace of the 1960s free speech movement, universities have defended the rights of some of the hateful far-right provocateurs to speak, such as Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter, while condemning the anti-fascist activists who launched protests aimed at shutting them down. There are also numerous recent examples of campus leaders clamping down on controversial progressive views. In 2016, the University of California, Berkeley, temporarily suspended a course dedicated to studying Palestine through the lens of settler colonialism in the face of backlash from pro-Israel groups. A Students for Justice in Palestine group also faced disciplinary probation after protesting at an event featuring Israeli veterans, and Fresno canceled a Middle East Studies professorship allegedly due to right-wing pressure. These same schools that these same schools make these high-minded statements in defense of free speech when they are under social media attack by white supremacists, Jackson said. Someone calls Barbara Bush a racist, and suddenly that is outside of the of the bounds of free speech, added James Anderson, an editor at It's Going Down, an anti-fascist website that has been documenting campus protests. But when people on the right are attacking people of color and the poor, then all of a sudden this is fundamental aspect then then all of a sudden, this is a fundamental aspect of our society. Provocative criticisms of Trump and white supremacy have also cost professors their jobs. In Fresno, the history lecturer Lars uh, Maischak went viral after the Daily Caller and Breitbart wrote about his controversial tweets, including one that said, Trump must hang, eventually leading him to lose his classes. Maischak, who is now teaching online classes, has said the tweets to just 28 followers at the time, said the tweets to just 28 followers at the time were taken out of context and were meant as a remark on the direction of the country, not a call to violence. Still, the university did not back him even as he faced a wave of death threats. He told The Guardian this week, administrations are always more concerned with reputation and publicity than with substance. I think a lot of folks I know who have worked in academia and our students would agree with that. Siding with critics in these kinds of cases is giving aid and comfort to this organized campaign of harassment, Maischek continued, adding, it's important to call out and condemn the attacks and the attackers and their motives. Gerard did not respond to a request for comment. Asked about the Fresno president's beyond free speech remark, a spokesperson said in an email, he meant that it is not solely an issue of free speech, but that it has to do with respect and compassion. But Lawrence Rosenthal, chair of the UC Berkeley Center for Right-Wing Studies, that even, ex- ugh, ugh, said it seemed clear the president was wrongly implying Gerard's treat- tweets were not protected for speech. It's, I'm not going to fucking quote this turd. 
and that's what I get to do. I mean, we, when you have your own show, you can call people turds if they are fucking supporting white supremacy. That's what I'm going to do. And that's the end of the article. I don't know why they gave him the last line in it. Um, uh, uh, okay. Ugh. Gross. Okay. Okay. Mm. I'm still just trying to get my mind around that there's a right-wing studies there's a center for right-wing studies i'm like rereading this to myself just to make sure i'm totally getting this seem clear the president was wrongly implying that we're not hmm i'm just really i'm gonna ponder this for a moment because I'm trying to like really understand like what their what this person was saying it seemed clear that the president was wrongly implying that Gerard's tweets were not protected free speech. All right. Well, I'm gonna let this fester in my mind a little bit. Um, that logic of that fail. Free speech is often disrespectfully said to create a distinction between free speech and free speech. Sounds like this person is defending. Uh, Ugh. a lot of hateful behavior. That's my summary of it. I'm going to let it, I'm going to think about that for a little bit because we all need more time to think and process things. Okay. Ugh. So if you again want to find the article, we've posted it on the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. It's already 124. How did that happen so fast? Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We have another 20 minutes or so of the show. We'll, provide some more news stories. We also are taking calls at 415-550-0511. Thank you so much for listening. And again, if you would like to contribute to the show, um, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. Any donation is greatly appreciated. You can also spread the word. And, you know, we also can, you can check out the show on iTunes as well. And coming up next is Women's Magazine with Global Val, followed by the Common Thread Collective. And there's comedy here tonight at the station as well. You can come through at 21st in Florida. And you can also just keep on listening. Just listen all day if you want to. There's great things. Also, there's archives with shows that go back. We have at least the last few years of archives here at Mutiny Radio, mutinyradio.fm. Uh, I've been talking a lot. How about we take a music break and I'll find some news stories to end on. Recently, oh, maybe I'll start off with this one. So, ugh. So, 45 is asking to work with Rudolph Giuliani and for folks who have lived in New York and remember what he was like is not, not, a, not, not, not good. Not good. So, the first thing I, I, <laughs> some folks had some funny commentary online about this and uh, the, I, you know, sarcastically saying, oh, every time, every time Giuliani gets involved with something, that's good, right? And so I, of course, thought of the Agnostic Front song, Police State, <laughs> which has some nice lyrics, including Giuliani, 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 fuck you. So we're going to start off with that. And then we're going to play, it was recently released, um, Prince's version. Prince, since Prince wrote the song, Nothing Compares to You. A lot of folks know the Sinead O'Connor version. And recently they released Prince's version of it, which is pretty beautiful. So we're going to play these two songs. I don't... We'll play them. Um, not sure what the segue is going to be like, but they're both hopefully will inspire you in one way or another. And then uh, we'll be back with some more news after that.
So stay tuned.
welcome back. Got a couple more stories about how borders fuck everything up. Uh, I would like to end on a positive note. However, it's 2018. And you know what? I've been doing the show since 2013, and there have been really depressing stories then, too. So recognizing it's been going on for a long time, and perhaps now we're seeing an increase in fascistic behavior and just ridiculousness. This is a local story. And this came out today, uh, more of an update uh, from the San Francisco Examiner. Activists from Philippines detained at airport for removal from U.S. And this is from the Bay City News and initially came out on the 18th. Uh, human rights advocates protested at San Francisco International Airport Wednesday afternoon after a Filipino activist visiting the U.S. for a speaking tour was detained on arrival. Jerome Aladdin Sukor Abba already had a visa when he boarded the flight, which was scheduled to arrive at SFO around 8 p.m. Tuesday, according to Terry Vallon, a spokesman for the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. There were people waiting for Abba at the airport, we were going to welcome him, feed him, make sure he's okay, and send him off in the morning, Valen said. But that didn't happen. The plane was delayed about 25 minutes. Two hours later, they still hadn't heard from Abba. Then, around 7 a.m. Wednesday, Abba left a voicemail saying he'd been denied entry to the U.S. and would be removed sometime later in the day, according to Valen. Sources within U.S. Customs and Border Protection, who asked to remain anonymous, confirmed that Abba's application to enter this country was denied due to an unspecified problem with his visa, which is relatively common, and that foreign nationals do not typically have access to an attorney until after they've been allowed entry. As of 2 p.m., Abba was being held in a secured area of the airport with access to food, water, and restroom while he waited for the next available seat on a flight back to the Philippines. Meanwhile, activists with an amplified sound system are gathering outside the Customs and Border Protection offices at SFO demanding that ABBA be allowed to enter the country and consult with legal representation from the National Lawyers Guild. Valen says ABBA is here to raise awareness about a humanitarian crisis unfolding in the Philippines, where he said an estimated 20,000 people have died under the brutal regime of President Rodrigo Duterte. The itinerary includes meetings with religious and government officials, including members of the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives, according to Valen. These are all meetings scheduled already, Valen said. He should be on his way there. U.S. Customs and Border Protection does not... Protecting from who? God damn. Excuse me. Sorry, I don't mean to yell on the mic. It's really... ah, ah. So Customs and Border Protection does not consider country of origin or human rights activism to be determining factors for admissibility, according to a statement issued by agency spokesman uh, Jaime Ruiz, but the agency is prohibited from discussing specific cases. Generally speaking, applicants for entry bear the burden of proof to establish their eligibility under federal law. Specific grounds for denying an application can be can include health problems, criminal history, security concerns, labor documentation, prior immigration violations, documentation problems, and other miscellaneous grounds, according to Ruiz. Oh, and so this person who is here to help educate American folks about what it's like living under a fascist dictator uh, couldn't stay in the country and talk with folks. Oh, it's fucking depressing as fuck. That's my, that's fucking gross. It's really fucking gross. And it was reported. So he was, um, he was flown back to Manila and there also just a follow up from CBS. They interviewed, uh, Terry villain who was speaking about it. Um, just so, fucked up that's my commentary on it 
Um, so Thursday morning, he boarded a flight back to Manila around 1230 a.m. And uh, Terry Vellan, who's the spokesman for the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, said that was ridiculous. And he describes it as in a human rights violation. They held him for more than 24 hours, Vellan said. Basically, it's illegal detention. According to him, they told Abba there was a quote-unquote glitch with his visa. Custom officials uh, said they were prohibited from discussing Abba's case, specifically when asked for more information on Wednesday, citing privacy laws, but said the country of origin and human rights activism are not determining factors in the case like his. And it's unclear at this time if and when Abba will attempt to travel to the U.S. again. It's all fucked up. If I were... Ugh. I... Ugh. Yeah, I... Ugh. And one more, I'll just read the headline here because I don't want to get so frustrated that I throw things out the window, which is something that I constantly say and oftentimes feel the need to just this... Uh, It's from the AP, and this came out on April 16th by Sheila Burke. Lawyers say, journalist was detained by ICE because of reporting. I'll I'll read a little bit, and then when I totally just start to lose it, then I'll stop reading, and then I'll play some music perhaps, and then... As a segue into the next program, Memphis, Tennessee, lawyers for a journalist who was arrested in Tennessee and then placed in an immigration detention facility said Monday that the government was trying to suppress his reporting and violated his rights of freedom of speech and the press. Attorneys with the, with the Southern Poverty Law Center have asked a federal court to release Manuel Duran Ortega, a reporter who was arrested earlier this month in Memphis during a demonstration that coincided with days of remembrance of the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King in that city. Duran 42 was working for Spanish language media outlet Memphis Nositas. Noticitas. Oh, excuse me. Uh, Noticias. And has written stories raising questions about local police and their cooperation with federal immigration officials, one of his attorneys at the SPLC said. He's been critical of law enforcement in his reporting and was targeted and retaliated against for that reporting, said Michelle Lapointe, senior staff attorney with SPLC. A spokeswoman with the Memphis Police Department and federal immigration official insisted that Duran's journalism had nothing to do with his arrest and detention. I, I sense a pattern here with these last two stories. People who are kind of speaking out against oppressive regimes uh, get retaliated against. And then the folks claim, oh, it's not an issue. That's not, that's not what it is. Yeah, uh, sure. You believe that, right? Oh, excuse me. <laughs> this is why I couldn't... There's many reasons why I can't see myself being like on the air. or well, I'm on the air. But you know what I mean. Like a larger form is that I just... It's fucking bullshit. A lot of these people are just fucking bullshit. All right. U.S. immigration officials maintain that Duran's immigration was, was flagged to them only after he was arrested by local police. Mr. Duran Ortega was ordered removed from the United States by a federal immigration judge in January 2007 after failing to appear for his scheduled court date. And I'm going to take a pause here. And a lot of us know that when they set up court dates for a lot of folks, they end up telling people last minute. They change the dates. Very often I'm thinking about the, uh, the case brought on by Kayla Moore's family to against the Berkeley police department who murdered Kayla Moore in 2013 and just hearing they'd say, okay, you can show up to court on this date and then folks show up and then just then they're like, Oh no, we're going to have you come back another time or this isn't going to happen now. And, or there's a lot of the folks in positions of power can do whatever they want pretty much to try to dissuade people from pressing charges and from speaking out. And this idea that there is justice folks don't have a lot of justice in these situations. There's not, they're not the people who are able to 
to create the the rules. There aren't even any rules anyway. It's folks in positions of power can pretty much do and say whatever they want. Oh, let me go back to the news story. Anyway, so it's just that thing. Oh, this person missed the court. That's their that's their word, and we also don't know how true that is and what the situation was. To individuals based on their criticism and or opinion of the Memphis Police Department. That's what the police the representative of the police department says. So that's again, that's their what they say. They can say whatever the fuck they want, and people can't hold them accountable. And then when they try to hold them accountable, then they're either arrested or spoken poorly of, etc. Court documents allege that Duran was unlawfully arrested April third. Reporting, okay, he was okay. So he was reporting on a protest, and then he was arrested. Oh, okay. And then the charges were dropped, um, but the reporter was picked up by immigration agents after he was released from jail. So he was arrested on disorderly conduct and obstruction of a highway. Okay. Um, Duran, who was originally from El Salvador, was then taken into custody of ICE and placed in detention in a facility in Louisiana. We all know that Louisiana has a, I think it's the state with the most jails, I believe, in the country. I'm not sure. Maybe I know there's a lot of prisoners and also in California. I feel like Louisiana in particular, I remember reading that jails and prisons is a pretty big industry there in that state. Lawyers have also filed a petition to have the deportation over order overturned, arguing that violence has escalated in El Salvador and reporters have been targeted, making it a dangerous place for him. And also we can see that reporters are also being targeted here in the U S clearly from this story. Durant says the arrest and detention have given him an opportunity to see firsthand the issues he has been reporting on and the realities immigrant families are facing. No one should be deprived of their freedom just for wanting a better future for their children. A statement Durant issued from detention said, this is a cruel system that criminalizes people who pose no danger to this country. All right. I'm going to end on that quote. Oh, good grief. Oh, all right. So, filled up the show very quickly. Lots of stories. Wanting to send a lot of love and energy to all the folks out there doing what you can. There's another... Oh, fuck. There's no shortage of stories about misbehavior by ICE. I'll just read it. I know I wasn't... I'm like, oh, I'm done with this one. Oh, nope. I'm going to read this one, too. Uh, I'll read the headline for this one from Syracuse.com. Upstate New York farmer says ICE officers stormed his farm without warrant, cuffed him through his phone. That's from April 19th. Uh, written by Marnie Eisenstadt. This was in Rome, New York. <sighs> Just fucking sickening. It's fucking sickening. Gross. So, again, putting out the energy for people to stop this behavior, for ICE agents to quit your fucking jobs, police officers to quit your jobs. Stop it. Stop that behavior. That's a very... <sighs> I don't know what good it does to say it, but putting the energy out there that maybe one person one day today will realize what they're doing is unjust, doesn't help people, it hurts people, and they'll stop and perhaps inspire others to do the same. Okay, here's to a world without borders. Putting that out there in the universe. Planting seeds that we might not see in our lifetime, that one day in the future, that will be the world people are living in all right thank you so much again for listening i appreciate all the folks who've donated to the show and continue to do so and if you would like to as well please that'd be really highly appreciated 
we are at patreon.com forward slash weekly rev even a dollar a month is greatly appreciated um please do spread the word you can listen to us on itunes as well as on the mutinyradio.fm website again coming up next is women's magazine with global val followed by the common thread collective followed by comedy tonight at mutiny radio and the comedy clubhouse i'll read a f- why not read the full list there's also just plenty of shows here every day of the week and if you are interested in a show here um all you do is you get trained uh, you pay monthly dues and then you get two hours a week to do any kind of programming you'd like there's also spaces here available for rentals it's pretty great um uh, there's upcoming showcases there's a lot of open mics here as well so you can get on the mic you can also donate directly to mutiny radio go if you go to pcrccollective.org is another site or mutinyradio.fm both one and the same so coming up after Women's Magazine is the Common Thread Collective. And then the Happy Hour Open Mic from 6 to 8. And then from 8 to 10 is the Comedy Clubhouse Showcase, followed by Third Access Radio. So, and then there's shows all throughout the week. Check out mutinyradio.fm. Ah, I'm going to drink some water and stop talking for a little bit. That sounds decent. Thanks to everyone out there for speaking the truth, especially when there's retaliation, especially when there's folks who don't want to hear the truth. Or folks who who threaten folks for speaking the truth, um, putting that out there in the universe too. Here's to more of that. Okay, I've gone through most of the songs played. Here's a song I heard recently. I heard it yesterday. Uh, it's uh, from Marcus uh, Wyatt. For those who like to get down. All right, and we'll be back next week. Have a great week, everyone.
are some other people that like music kind of mellow. Okay? What we've got to get in our mind is that if you're a person that likes excitable music, don't mess with the person that likes mellow music. Just let him do his thing, okay? If you're the kind of person that likes mellow music, don't get on the back of the folks that like to get down.
Too few 